election 2020 is mostly in the rear view. And so as we look back, it's time to take stock of the time period from 2016 through 2020, that is to say, the Trump administration. Comparing where we were at the beginning of the Trump administration as a country, where the Republican Party was, and where both will go moving forward, provides an illuminating picture of the impact of Donald Trump on American politics and the likely legacy that he is going to have from future historians. So what can we say about Donald Trump? Well, as is always the case, it's complicated. I'm Dr. Nolte, and this is Blind Politics. And welcome podcast listeners to another analytical episode of Blind Politics with Dr. Nolte. I am Dr. A.J. Nolte, Assistant Professor of politics and government at Regent University's Robertson School of Government. Please remember that views expressed in this podcast do not represent those of either Regent University or the Robertson School. Remember that you can rate and subscribe to our podcast on iTunes, Spotify, Google Podcasts, or your favorite podcast provider, and you can find us on Facebook at Blind Politics with Dr. Nolte. So, I wanted to step back and do a little bit of a retrospective. It's been a week since the election. It is increasingly clear that the most likely outcome, by most likely outcome, I mean like 99.999% most likely outcome, is that Donald Trump is going to be a one-term president. Joe Biden will be sworn in as president in January of 2021. And we'll be looking at the Trump administration in the rear view. I don't want to get too much into the current furor over recounts, stolen elections, et cetera, et cetera. We'll talk about it a little bit, but let me just say this for now. It is historically extremely unlikely that with the margins Trump is down by in the states that he is down in, that any result like that would be overturned. It is historically extremely unlikely. In addition to which, it is very common now to have wild claims of election fraud that have been unsubstantiated. In 2018, Stacey Abrams on the Democratic side was making wild, unsubstantiated claims. Andrew Gillum in Florida was making wild, unsubstantiated claims. In both cases, candidates lost by over 50,000 votes. And when you have a margin that's that big, it tends not to get overturned by a recount. I'm not saying there wasn't election fraud. I'm not saying there weren't shenanigans. When you start talking about jurisdictions like Philadelphia, there are shenanigans. Philadelphia is Chicago East. For those who aren't as familiar with Pennsylvania politics, Philadelphia elections are a byword for shenanigans. I'm sure there are shenanigans in Detroit, Milwaukee, other jurisdictions as well. Anywhere where you have a political machine that is really 
one party dominance of a, of a given area and a political machine that is ruthless and effective. There's going to be a certain amount of shenanigans. Usually, it happens on a small scale, on a low level, in elections that nobody pays attention to. But there's almost always something in terms of presidential elections. Dead people voting, poll watchers kicked out, ballots found in the back of somebody's truck. This happens on a pretty regular basis, unfortunately, in some of these jurisdictions. It's usually not enough to change the outcome. Now, we've got a lot of races that are close, and so it looks superficially like these instances will loom large. And if what comes out of this is that there is pressure for some of these jurisdictions to reform the way they do elections, that's not entirely a bad thing. You know, the one state you're not hearing about right now is Florida, because when Florida had an issue in 2000, they cleaned things up. They focused on it. They established some best practices. They fixed the problem. So that's what happens from this great. But what is probably not going to happen is that the election result is, is likely to be overturned. The margins are substantial in most of these states. Not all of them, but the states that are really narrow are not enough from what we can see now to flip the electoral college result. Pennsylvania's margin is not going to be that small. It's not going to be small enough that it's likely to change in a recount. Two things can be true at the same time. There can be shenanigans, and the person who won actually probably would have won without the shenanigans. And that's what it looks like is going to be the outcome of Pennsylvania at this point. So I, I was not buying the conspiracy theory when the idea from Democrats was that the post office was somehow going to be manipulated by Trump to steal the election because of reasons. I'm not buying the conspiracy theory now that says that a party that was so incompetent that they had a presidential candidate who got more, more votes, it seems like right now, than any other presidential candidate in history and managed to actually lose seats in the House and the Senate. That a party so, that is so incredibly incompetent that they bought their own po polling hype. A party that is so incredibly incompetent that they spent $100 million in a Senate race in South Carolina to lose to Lindsey Graham by 13 points. They spent almost as much money to lose by almost as big of a margin to Mitch McConnell. That party that is that incompetent is suddenly omnicompetent when it comes to rigging elections in all of these states. So I, I'm just not buying it at this point. Things could change. And if there's um, credible, actionable evidence of large-scale voter fraud, it needs to be brought to court. Not posted on anything you see on Facebook. You see memes going around on Facebook, anything like that. If it's not in a filing that's been brought before a court, it's, it's not serious. It's unsubstantiated rumors. If it's substantiated, it will be brought before the courts. It will be taken. There's a legal process that, that needs to go through. Okay. doesn't mean go, calling a talk show, posting it on Facebook or Instagram or something like that. You go, you take it to a judge, you take it to court. If we see filings along those lines that allege credibly substantial voter fraud, then we'll have something to talk about. Right now, from what we can tell, 
It's a lot of innuendo. It's a lot of social media. It's a lot of, I would say, understandable distrust for a political and media establishment that clearly does not like President Trump and was willing to pull out the stops to do anything they could to prevent him from getting reelected, up to and including creating a self-reinforcing echo chamber where they hype things up and then believe they're hype, right? I get that. I get all of that. I'm not buying this conspiracy theory. I'm not buying the idea that the election was stolen at this point. Show me the evidence. And if we do, then we'll have something to talk about. But until then, this is what it's looking like. Joe Biden's going to be the next president. Donald Trump is a one-term president. So here at Blind Politics, that's the, that's the hermeneutic we're going to operate under. That's, that's the assumption that we're going to take. Until and unless there's credible, substantial evidence of voter fraud sufficient that it will change the outcome in the Electoral College. That's the threshold. That's the evidence that I want to see before I'm going to buy into any of this stuff. Show me that. You know, not from Missouri, but show me the evidence of that. Then we'll have something to talk about in terms of this being a, a rigged election or stolen election or anything like that. Just like show me, Democrats, evidence that the post office is being manipulated. By the way, how's that working out for you? You idiots that believe that conspiracy theory. And I hate to be that harsh, but it was a ridiculous conspiracy theory. Now the people who are saying this election is sacrosanct and it was the most beautiful election in history because it gave us the result that we wanted. The same people that was talking, they were talking about how corrupt the post office was and how the post office was going to steal the election for Trump. This dovetails perfectly into the conversation that I want to have. Okay. Um, we can't talk about the legacy of Donald Trump without talking about the way that simply by virtue of being Donald Trump, he drove everyone crazy. His supporters, his opponents, everyone. Absolutely around the bend. I think that's to a certain extent is a combination of underlying circumstances that already exist and his personality. By his personality, I mean the character that he plays on TV. Look, the thing you have to understand about Trump going way back, way back before his, his career in politics, is what is it that made Donald Trump successful? Is it his, his success in business? That's the argument that you always hear from people. He's a successful businessman. No, that's not what made Trump. Okay? He inherited money and inherited a business from his dad. And from what we can tell, he managed it in such a way that it stayed afloat. That is it itself an accomplishment, okay? Sometimes people inherit businesses and wealth from their parents and they completely squander it. He did not do that. However, he did not inherit wealth and then multiply it and make himself a multi-billionaire as he sort of sometimes claims. He did okay with it. But what he did do very effectively was create a brand based on the idea that he was a famous rich businessman. He played the character of a famous rich businessman. He is a not rich person's idea of what a rich person is like. I don't think most people that, that have wealth, and when I talk about wealth, I'm, I'm talking about great wealth here. I'm talking about, you know, top one, one half of, of one tenth of one percent or whatever, you know, top, 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 top people who have a great deal of wealth. I don't think most of them probably act a lot like Trump. I think he's probably an outlier there, but I think. If you were to sort of create a caricature or a stereotype of what that person would be like, it'd be Trump. And Trump figured out that there was a brand here. There was an opportunity to brand himself and to make himself famous. Psychologically, when you're looking at Trump, 
the joke that I made to somebody recently is that everybody thought Trump was Mussolini. It turns out he's a little bit more like Michael Scott. The quote with Michael Scott is Michael Scott uh, from The Office says, I don't need to be liked. I, I like to be liked. I want to be liked. But I don't have this like compulsive need to be liked, like my need to be praised. Trump really needs people to say nice things about him. Uh, he needs to be praised, right? It's just, you know, you can like, love him or hate him. It's just an undeniable fact of who he is. And so he created this brand of himself as a certain type of person. He, he became the stereotypical epitome of what people who are, you know, on the outside looking in would think that a rich business person would be like. He is famous for being rich. And in turn, to a certain extent, he got rich by being famous. So it's mutually self-reinforcing. But that's something that's been key to who he is. And he very quickly realized the most effective way to brand yourself is to, by picking a fight with somebody. And that essentially, you know, trolling yourself into wealth, fame, and, and success. He's very effective at branding. It's the easiest form of branding. You know, he's, he's close friends with Vince McMahon. It's sort of the WWF brand of, of uh, or form, form of branding. You know, Trump was, in, in wrestling terms, kind of the heel. So these are things that he did. They were integral to who he was before he became president. But when you do that for long enough, you can't really turn it off, right? So he brings this approach to politics. And it's very effective in a Republican primary because Republican voters had a perception already that they were being walked on by cultural elites that disdained them and didn't care about them and didn't like them. And here's Donald Trump, this, this non-rich person's idea of what a rich person is like. And he hates the same people that they hate. And all those people hate him. And he seems like the champion. He seems like the tribune of the plebs. He seems like the guy who's going to take it to those people that have spat on and looked down on the non-elite white population of the United States, often white evangelicals included in that, for a long time. That's Trump's appeal. Trump's appeal is precisely that the kind of people that look down on um, the white working class, white evangelical Christians, etc., also don't like Trump. And Trump doesn't like them. And to a certain extent, Trump scares them. At least that's the perception, right? So that's why he has this connection. It's not necessarily that, that any of these folks like Trump, that they'd want him to, to marry their daughter or anything like that. It's that this is a guy that the people who don't like us are afraid of. And he's going to take it to them. And he's going to make them experience at his hands what we've experienced from them for decades. That's the perception. And understanding that sense of alienation from that, that sense of sort of strong anti-elitist populism that's already there is key to understanding the catalyzing effect that Trump has in a number of ways on politics. One of the things that, became, that has become clear in hindsight is just the degree to which there is a chasm that runs through white America politically between elite and non-elite white. And how that chasm actually is the defining divide in American politics. It is a divide within the white politically active population between elite and non-elite. It's conservative and progressive to a certain extent, but that's less important that ideological component is less important than are you one of the elites or one of the non-elites? Are you one of the, the real Americans or the coastal elites? 
are you one of the, the good righteous people or the dirty deplorables, right? This is all very, it, it's, it's a class divide. And we don't do that in America traditionally. That's not something, it's not, it's not a language that we speak. It's not the, the type of politics that we're used to in America. But for the first time since, like, I don't know, Andrew Jackson, maybe, there's a real definable, discernible, populist class revolt happening. Michael Lind, uh, who is a, a sort of political science-y, technocratic centrist dude, calls this a new class war. And I think, he's, I think there's something to this. And you'll, you'll notice, too, that when you look at the discourse, the elite discourse, which is defined by the academic, woke corporate, and sort of elite political world, is just incapable of having a conversation about class that does not also revolve around a conversation about race. They'd rather talk about race every day of the week and twice on Sundays than, than have one minute where they talk about class. Because once you start talking about class, then those people that you've trained yourself to hate and think of as the bad people actually look like a people that you are oppressing if you're from that elite perspective, right? So we can't talk about class. Elite whites are incapable of having a meaningful conversation about class. And so they will disguise it in any other form that they can, right? And this has become abundantly clear in the midst of Trump. Now, Trump himself is not one of the downtrodden, not one of the forgotten class, not one of the sort of non-elite class. And that's part of his appeal is that he's not one of them, but he will fight for them. And that, that essentially gets him elected because Democrats also nominated in 2016 the most stereotypical representative of the elite they could possibly find, who literally her appeal was, you should vote for me because I'm a woman. Like, I remember watching a Democratic debate with Hillary Clinton and everyone asked, you know, what is it that makes you special as opposed to all these other Democrats that are running? And she said, well, I think it's obvious. You know, I'm a woman. And I remember watching that with my wife at the time and her looking at me and saying, I can't believe she just said that. Why would anybody vote for her just because she's a woman? That makes no sense. It, it, but, but it does make sense to a certain extent from that elite perspective that is obsessed with the idea of intersectional equity, but incapable of having a conversation about class. Because from the perspective of intersectional equity, Hillary Clinton is, is representative of women who are a marginalized group. But from the perspective of class, Hillary Clinton is at the top of the elite pyramid. Absolutely at the top. Okay, from the perspective of intersectional equity, Hillary Clinton is not really privileged because she's not a straight white male. From the perspective of class, there are very few straight white males who are not more privileged than Hillary Clinton. And so, again, we can't have this meaningful conversation because we're talking about completely different categories. And Trump absolutely picks up on this and highlights it and hammers the point home and gets elected. Right. So then we have the Trump administration. And what became clear is very, very quickly was that there were two ways Trump could have gone. One that everyone was afraid of. And I'll admit I had some concerns along these lines in 20, 2016 was that Trump was going to be an authoritarian. But it became very clear that he was not interested in the business of governing at that granular level. You can't be an authoritarian and delegate as much as he did. 
And so that's what we, we have learned from Trump. Trump was not an authoritarian. He was a demagogue. There's a difference. Okay, demagogue wants to whip up a populist mob, and then it's, when it's whipped up, they don't necessarily always have a clear idea what they want to do with it. So he did that, got himself elected, whipped up populism, and then really he did not have any concept of what he was going to do with it. And so the struggle for his supporters over the next four years was to provide a defining ideology for Trumpism when Trump was not interested in ideology. He's not interested in sort of a coherent program. He's interested in doing what he's always done, picking fights with people that he wants to pick fights with, engaging in the type of branding that has been successful for him throughout his career, which is picking fights with people, and, you know, being famous, being the most famous person in the world, and and building on the techniques of, of fame that have worked for him in the past. And so what happens? You end up outsourcing much of the decision-making to people in the administration. And this is where Mike Pence comes in, vice president. My read on Mike Pence is basically as follows. Pence probably knew he was never going to be president. Pence knew that being Trump's vice presidential nominee was a risk. But if Trump lost, he was going to take the fall for the party with the expectation that someday down the road, he would be basically rehabilitated and he wasn't going to do anything that was going to risk him looking bad moving forward. You know, Mike Pence campaigned as a very normal Republican in the 2016 debate with Tim Kaine. Then when Trump won, Pence realized there's a very different opportunity. And, and I think, I think it's important to understand this. If you're looking at the Trump administration, that Pence better than almost anybody else understood the character of the person that he was dealing with, which is that you can do anything behind the scenes to advance your priorities with Donald Trump as long as you are conspicuously and publicly loyal. Conspicuous public loyalty is the coin of the realm with Trump. Know that that loyalty is probably not going to be reciprocated, at least in any sort of public sense, because it's always more important to Trump that, that the crowd like him than that he reci reciprocate that. Right. But that conspicuous public loyalty is the coin of the route. You'll never hear Pence criticize Trump at any point in those four years. Because he recognizes the character of the person that he's dealing with. And as a result of that, he essentially is able to craft policy in a couple of key areas, particularly on the areas that Pence cares about most, which are, which are pro-life issues and international religious freedom. And his impact there is tremendous. And we'll come back to that in a second. Others do not get this. To do that requires an astonishing lack of ego. And you're, you're not going to get most people that are coming into the administration that are going to be capable of that. Pence was. And I think it's, it's a combination of, of lack of ego on his part. It's also a combination of, of intense discipline. Because you have to be an intensely disciplined person to recognize that this is what you're going to do and then carry that out for four years. And so that's essentially what Pence did. And again, whether you, whether you agree with his policies and, and, and the prescriptions that he put in place there or not, you have to admire the sheer you know, commitment to a specific set of principles that that requires. If you were an, if you were an advocate of those principles of, of the pro-life or international religious freedom, 
causes. <laughs> you have to kind of admire somebody who's willing to essentially risk their entire political career and reputation because there's, there's, it's not clear at the outset of this that the Trump administration is going to go well by any way and by, by any means. Risking that to advance your chosen positions, it's a gutsy move. It's a very gutsy move. As somebody who's sympathetic to, to the pro-life and international religious freedom positions on which Pence was active, I appreciate it. But even if you don't agree with it, you have to recognize the politics of what's happening and you know, have a certain amount of admiration for somebody being able to carry out that gambit for four years. <laughs> so what ends up happening then with the Trump administration is that you've got somebody coming in from the outside and he doesn't actually know the rules of the game and he doesn't care about the rules of the game. And so he throws out the rule book. Okay. Take the pro-life issue. The rule of the game is you talk a good game about being pro-life and then not much gets done. You do Mexico City, you do a couple of other minor executive orders, not much gets done. It's just not an area that, that anybody wants to make a concerted effort to try to advance. And the executive agencies and Congress is never going to do anything about it, which the second part of that held true in the Trump administration. However, Trump doesn't know those are the rules, right? He doesn't know that what Republicans have tended to do is talk a good game on this and then not accomplish much. So he hands it off to the evangelical he trusts the most, Mike Pence. And Mike Pence doesn't play by the rules. Mike Pence tries to move the ball forward substantively on that issue. On foreign policy, Trump throws out the rule book and he substitutes his private judgment for the judgment of the experienced foreign policy hands in Washington, D.C. And sometimes his private judgment is correct. Trump says, it's, we've said we're going to move the capital of Israel to Jerusalem. It's ridiculous that we haven't done this. We're going to do this. He did. And lo and behold, the heavens did not collapse. The Middle East did not descend into an orgy of violence. All of the other doom and gloom predictions from the elite foreign policy consensus about how this would be the end of the Middle East proved false. He pulls out of the Iran deal. Same thing. He um, targets Qasim Soleimani, kills him. Same thing. Every, all, all of the, the massive negative repercussions that were predicted by the establishment in foreign policy didn't happen. Okay. So at that point, you're thinking, okay, things, things are, are working out. Then he does something like, for example, pulling troops out of northeast Syria and letting the Turks come in. And everybody says this is going to be a disaster. Moving the capital of Jerusalem wasn't a disaster. Pulling out of the Iran deal wasn't a disaster. So he's like, it's not going to be a disaster. And it kind of was. <laughs> so that's the thing about throwing out the rule book, is that some of the rules exist because of inertia, and they exist because people haven't rethought things in a long period of time, and they really should be thrown out. And sometimes the rules exist for a very good reason. And listening to the sober and serious judgment of the people around you is important. Other Trump ideas were kind of wacky fun. Buying Greenland is a wacky fun idea. I don't hate it. You have to have a, a partner that's interested in selling. But I will I will defer here to the, the great Jonah Goldberg, who when the Greenland sale came up, and this is somebody who's not a big fan of Trump, said, you know what? Buy land. It's not like they're making any more. So, you know, that was that was kind of fun. And I think it does 
when you've got somebody who completely shakes up policy on, on something like foreign policy, it does lead to a reexamination of what are the things that we just assume are true because they've always been true? And what are the things that we assume are true because, in fact, they are, and they are representative of realities that exist on the ground? I think we have a better sense of that, particularly in the Middle East, than we did before Trump came into office. And I think it's going to be very hard for the pre-Trump consensus on the Middle East to be completely reestablished because so many of the eternal verities by which the politics of and the, the sort of elite consensus on the Middle East has been shaped have been completely chucked in the trash. Eternal verities like no Arab state will ever make peace with Israel unless there are concessions on the Palestinians, except for the fact that two of them just did. Verities like you can't just move the capital to Jerusalem without a backlash, except that they, the U.S. did. You know, notions that the best way to handle things with adversaries like Iran is always to just negotiate. And the negotiation is, is always better. It always will have better outcomes. I'm not so sure that we can say that, given that you now have an increasing realignment in the region against Iran. Trump administration was not good for Iran. I do think, though, that sometimes the foreign policy consensus exists for a very good reason. And again, this is one of the dangers of just throwing out the rule book completely, is sometimes you reevaluate and, and you move away from things that don't need to be moved away from. Vladimir Putin is not America's friend. He's never going to be America's friend. It was a hard-won consensus that Putin couldn't be trusted, particularly in Eastern Europe. By hard-won consensus, I mean both the Obama and Bush administrations came in hoping that they could do some sort of deal with Putin and that they could work with him. And over time, over bitter years of experience, they learned that that was going to be false. Okay, So this is not an assumption like the sort of blithe assumption that everything has to go through, through the Israeli-Palestinian conflict and negotiations are always best and all this kind of stuff about the Middle East. That's just a bunch of happy talk that was assumed because nobody tested it. The consensus that Vladimir Putin is an adversary was a consensus arrived at by both Democratic and Republican administrations against their will. And so it's foolish to throw out a consensus that is achieved against the initial judgment of those administrations. And so that was a mistake on Trump's part, and, and it was a serious mistake, and we still don't know the full ramifications of that. But certainly North Korea would, would fall into this as well. Trump assumes that if you know he could just do personal diplomacy because he's such a great deal maker. Hard won experience of people who've tried multiple times to deal with the North Korean regime in a bunch of different ways is there's some things that work and there's some things that don't. Okay. It's very difficult from the inside, from the outside in, to see which of the rule books in foreign policy exist because people just haven't questioned their assumptions and which don't. Okay. So in foreign policy, I think I think Trump has shaken things up. And it's unclear to see where things are going to settle out after that. But certainly, um, there are some assumptions that have now been tested that have been proven correct that were held in the past by the foreign policy consensus. And there are others that have proven incorrect. 
And so, you know, I, I say this with the full knowing full disclosure that most of the things that I think have been disasters were things that I think were bad idea in the first place when when Trump did them. And most of the things that, that Trump has done that I think have worked out relatively well were things that I didn't have a problem with when he did them in the first place. So that either means that I have good foreign policy judgment or that I'm looking at some of the stuff through the lens of, of my own pre-existing biases. I'm not going to totally rule out the latter, but I will say that I think there is a tendency to either say everything Trump did was good on foreign policy or everything was bad. And I think that's really not sustainable and, and indicates that maybe you didn't have that many principled ideas of foreign policy to begin with if you're going to take that road because Trump has been very erratic on that. And, and the Trump administration has been very erratic in terms of foreign policy. I do not think you can say that Trump has consistently eroded the standards of the U.S. in the world. I do think you can say that many of our allies are probably made nervous by his inconsistency. And I would say that probably also includes some allies that he was quite close to. I, I, I would imagine he dealing, dealing with someone who has that sort of inconsistent temperament and foreign policy would be challenging. Okay, so that's foreign policy. Let's talk about the issue of Trump and sort of racial division. And this is a big one. And look, here's the thing. This is an area where Trump is really hard to, hard to assess. And it would have been much easier to assess Trump in terms of, uh, in these terms, two weeks ago. Two weeks ago, based on every evidence that we had, you would have clearly said that Trump had, had furthered racial divisions, that Trump had poisoned the well for the Republican Party with, with minority voters, that Trump had, in a sense, widened racial divisions um, and, and sort of made a permanent sea change and created a permanent coalition for Democrats between white progressive elites and pretty much every non-white racial minority group. And then the election happened, and that narrative got blown to smithereens. And look, you have to go where the data takes you, okay? You have to look at the available evidence, whether the evidence fits your preconceived notions or not, okay? If you told me in 2016 that the guy who was talking about how Mexicans were coming across the border and they were rapists and all this kind of stuff and said that a judge who was Mexican couldn't fairly hear a lawsuit that Trump brought because he was of Mexican heritage, if you were to tell me that that guy would get the highest percentage of the vote of any Republican in Star County, Texas, which is a majority or a heavily Mexican-American county, since highest percent of any Republican since William Howard Taft in 2020, I would have told you that you were a crazy Trump apologist who was on something, okay? That you were a crazy Trump apologist who was drinking some wacky, wacky Kool-Aid and where can I get that? But that's what just happened. Okay, if you were to tell me that the guy who said there were good people on both sides in Charlottesville, and I get I get that if you're a Trump supporter, you think that was taken kind of out of context, but my goodness, it was such an inept statement. Who made who's made inept statements literally every time he's asked to condemn white supremacy. He just he just can't say it in a way that comes across as a clear condemnation. He just can't do it. You tell me that guy. That guy 
would dramatically improve his vote share among African-American males. Again, I would have told you that you were up in your sleep, but that just happened. We have to look at the data. We have to look at the evidence. We have to go where the evidence takes us. And if the evidence, ta evidence takes us in a way that's counterintuitive, then we need to reassess some of the things that are happening. One of the things that I think we need to re reassess as we're looking at this and the Trump, should lead, the Trump administration should and, and Trump's electoral outcome should lead us to reassess is the idea that rhetoric's the most important thing. Another is the idea that immigration is the only issue that Mexican-American voters care about. If immigration is the only issue that Mexican-American voters care about, they should be voting for Biden over Trump in numbers that are much more equivalent to the numbers that Obama got over Romney in 2012. That's the baseline that we should at least expect. And that didn't happen. So something else is going on. Rhetoric's not the most important thing. Immigration's not the only issue. Okay? It leads us to start re-evaluating and questioning some of our assumptions. So what's Trump's legacy on race? I don't really think we know at this point. His rhetoric was bad. His electoral performance was confusing. And so again, we have to look at we have to look at the, the data, we have to look at the evidence. What does that point to? Maybe what it points to is just that the the class dynamics of the divide between white and non-white voters also have an impact among non-white voters. So you have an intra-white class divide. Maybe that has a bigger impact with non-white minority voters than we realize. That's one theory. Another theory is that these non-white voters have realized that they're swing voters. If the primary divide in American politics is a class divide between elite and non-elite white voters, then guess what? If you're not a white voter, you're a swing voter. You potentially have the ability to determine which of these groups of white people that really hate each other ends up running the country. And maybe there's a recognition of that that comes in. I don't know. Maybe the Democrats just came across as so patronizing that a significant number of voters decided they'd rather go with the guy who is open about using rhetoric that's, that's not complimentary toward those communities than deal with another patronizing lecture about how if you don't vote for Joe Biden, you ain't black. Or about how the Democrats are going to do the, the things best for Latin, Latinx voters. Yeah, that was, that was another... I, I, I know I mentioned that in a previous podcast, so we'll just move on from that. Okay, so what's Trump's legacy on race? We don't know. Okay, is Trump's legacy the divisions that came about because of his rhetorical inability to condemn white supremacists if he thought the white supremacists might kind of like him, sort of, and so he couldn't say anything bad about them? Is his primary legacy a rhetorical populist embrace of nativist appeals? and you know racial dog whistles if you're a democrat that's what you think his legacy is but if you're a republican is that the legacy or is the legacy the fact that he's opened the possibility for republicans to make major inroads into non-white communities if you're a republican is the legacy that donald trump actually made a substantive effort with money behind it to win african-american and hispanic latino voters that to a degree paid off. Is that Trump's legacy in terms of racial issues? I don't really know. Like I said, before the election, I would have very clearly said his legacy is 
the comments. It's the rhetoric. But after the election? No. And are we capable of accepting and analyzing new data about Trump when he when they come in? Or are our perceptions of him baked in so hard that there's no new data that can change our perception? Trump and his legacy for institutions. I remember a couple years ago. I guess this would have been early 2019. I, I was talking to another political scientist and I said, the fascinating thing about Trump is that he has eroded faith, Americans' faith in institutions precisely while demonstrating their robustness. In other words, Trump proved that our institutions work at the same time as his advent undermined the faith of the American people in those institutions. That comment was almost two years old, and I'm sticking by it. It's clear at this point that, barring, again, clear, obvious, demonstrable evidence, voter fraud in enough states, and involving enough votes sufficient to change the projected outcome in the Electoral College, barring that highly unlikely scenario, it's clear that the quote-unquote authoritarian uh, populist demagogue who was constantly, we are told, at risk of undermining democracy is going to end up being a one-term president who lost the election and then left to like go start a TV network or something. That's not authoritarian. That's not dictatorship. That's not a coup. It's, it's none of those things. <laughs> Donald Trump will, in all likelihood, unless things really dramatically change, have done none of those things. The institutions worked. They kept him from doing the most egregious things that could have been done. Okay? At the same time, both Democrats and Republicans have embraced some really crazy conspiracy theories over the past couple of years. And that's been fed into by Trump. Both Trump's supporters and his opponents have much less faith in our institutions than they did before he came in. Now, is Trump a symptom of that or is he the cause? I think it's both. I think if, if you have people that have high faith in our institutions, Trump probably never gets the presidency in the first place. But I also think he's done something to undermine and erode that faith. So it's, it's both a catalyst and a symptom. I don't think the damage is irreversible. The institutions themselves have shown out pretty, pretty well. But I, I, I do wonder if the faith that we have in the institutions is going to come back. And my suspicion is that that will only happen if there is a degree of institutional reform. So Trump's legacy, again, for, for our institutions is complicated. On the one hand, if it's an acid test for the institutions, they passed, <laughs> for the most part. On the other hand, if the acid test is, do people still have faith in the institutions, that's not looking so hot. And that's a troubling aspect of the situation that, in, in which we find ourselves. Institutions operate to a certain extent on trust. And if both sides have lost trust in their institutions when the other side controls them, 
that is a recipe for badness down the road. And so we are presented with the question of what do we do to restore our faith in, in America's institutions? What is Trump's legacy for the Republican Party and, and for sort of the conservative movement? Okay. If we were talking again two or three weeks ago, I would have said that Donald Trump's legacy was likely to be almost entirely negative. That he was a one-term president who then lost badly, disastrously, cost Republicans their position in the other branches of government, and pushed them into the wilderness, at which point there would be a massive reconsideration of the future of the party. Yeah, that's not Trump's legacy at this point. <laughs> Donald Trump left the Repu will have left the Republican Party in about the same shape that he founded it. Slightly worse in the, in the House, slightly infinitesimally better in the Senate, probably, assuming the runoffs go the way we're expecting in Georgia in, in January. Kind of about the same in state legislatures, maybe a smidge less there. But not a disaster, not not the end of the Republican Party as we know it that has been so loudly predicted by his critics. But there have been shifts. The Republican Party that Donald Trump leaves behind is, is poorer, on average, less educated, and less white. <laughs> poorer, less educated, and less white. It has fewer college-educated white people and more minorities. Just like we all would have predicted at the outset of, of, of the Trump administration. That seems to be the, the, the net impact. Now, I don't know if that's going to last or not. But that's the, that's the Republican Party that as it looks, again, like, like Donald Trump is going to exit the scene here. Um, possibly kicking, screaming, tweeting, and, and threatening to start the Trump News Network. But that's, that looks like what we're going to see here. Um, and he will have left the party poor, less educated, and less white, decidedly more populist, um, decidedly less wedded to the fiscal conservative orientation that has traditionally been kind of the unifying theme of the Republican Party since at least the 1920s. That's up for grabs at this point. Basically, there's no fiscally conservative political party in the United States anymore. The Republicans were only ever a fiscally conservative party, like, sometimes. Populism is not a fiscally conservative movement, generally speaking. The Republican Party is probably more socially conservative than it was when Trump came in. <clears throat> the, the new voters that seem to be coming in the party a little bit more socially conservative than the uh, upscale, college-educated white suburbanites that are leaving the party. So here's the really interesting question. Do those upscale white suburbanites snap back? And do the new voters that have come in, the African-American males, the Hispanic Latino groups across the, the board, Mexican, Cuban, Puerto Rican, etc., stay? Those are the two big questions for, for 
Republicans. And can they have their cake and eat it too? Can they have either enough of the new populist non-white voters or enough of the old sort of pre-Trump suburban Republicans? Can they get some combination of enough of them to essentially create a new viable coalition? Now, I think that you're going to see some snapback from the white uh, suburbanite traditional Republicans, but not a full one. I think that constituency is much less Republican moving forward because that is the group that is the most offended by Trump. It's not African-Americans. It's not Hispanic Latino voters. It's not any other minority group that he maybe said not nice things about. It's particularly white suburban women. That's the group that's most turned off by Trump. And it's a group that's that's particularly um, skeptical of any kind of populism. There's going to be a certain amount of snapback in that group, but I don't think they're ever coming all the way back. Um, they were starting to drift away from Republicans before Trump came. Trump accelerated that trend. I don't see it fully reversing. So then the interesting question is, the new voters that are coming in, does, does the Republican Party learn how to keep them and expand its appeal to those communities? I think that's, a, that's an existential question for the Republican Party in, a, in the sense that I think if the Republican Party does not figure out how to take what they've gotten in 2020 from this election and build off of it in, in terms of minority outreach, that the Republican Party is not going to survive. So it's, it's an existential, because if you're banking on the, the, the suburbs, the elite suburbs coming back, like the, the wealthier, more upscale, college-educated, elite or, or borderline elite white voters coming back, that's probably not going to happen, especially if, as I said at the outset, we're looking at a politics that's going to be driven by a class conflict within the white population, because people that are on the edges of the elite want to identify up rather than down in terms of class. Um, so, yeah, I, I think that the future of the Republican Party is probably socially conservative, populist, um, somewhere in, in the uh, hyper-patriotic to nationalist lens, and increasingly not white. Some of that, I think, was predictable from Trump. Some of that, not so much. I think if you're talking about Trump's legacy in terms of partisanship, it's undeniable that he's made that worse. This is one where it's pretty clear cut. Um, Republicans and Democrats did not like each other before. They hate each other now. <laughs> and Trump has catalyzed that. And that makes sense if you think about the fact that he's, he's a, the type of person who creates a brand and branding is, is sort of the thing that he does. And he does it by picking fights with people who don't like him. And so as we've been caught up in that very personal politics, Donald Trump wants to make everything a, a referendum on him personally. Sometimes that doesn't work out for him, for him very well. If you're ever interested in an example of this from the non-political world, read the book Football, by a, uh, Football for a Buck about the USFL. And about how the NFL made made their dispute with the USFL, which was a spring league from the 80s, entirely about Donald Trump, who was one of the owners, and how Donald Trump was happy to do that as well. And it ended up not working out well for the USFL. 
Okay. The Republican Party compared to the USFL uh, has gotten off lightly if the 2020 election plays out the way it looks like it's going to. And this is all the damage they, they take from it. Because essentially the Spring League was destroyed. <laughs> so anyway, th that adding the personal element to it, the idea that everything had to be sort of filtered through your perception of Trump when he's such a polarizing figure, just threw gasoline on the, the partisan fire, which was pretty strong to begin with. So Trump's legacy there is absolutely that he has deepened the partisan divide. And I think there's a psychological impact to that in the sense that um, there's a corrupting element. When everything becomes a, a, a personality, becomes mediated through what your opinion about that person says about you, there is a corruption of principles that naturally follows because your identity is wrapped up in your view of this person. And so your ability to hold to an actual principled stand on an issue becomes compromised because that person may not may or may not be consistent on the issue that you're talking about that's the first corruption but that's not where it ends because then everything ultimately comes down to this this question of personalities and increasingly you're willing to throw away more and more as a result of that and this is the most dangerous potential legacy of, of Trump and the Trump administration, is the corruption of our politics away from politics of, of persuasion and toward the politics of self-expression. And that's an undeniable legacy that people support or oppose Donald Trump because of what they think it says about them. And when you have a politics that is so defined by one person and that person's personality. Inevitably, you have self-expression replace persuasion because it's impossible to persuade someone in terms of Donald Trump. Let me end on a personal note. I would say that in some ways, my opinion of Donald Trump probably did not change from the moment that he walked down that escalator to today. And that would be in particular, my, my opinion of Donald Trump's character hasn't changed that much. With the exception of, I would say, I underestimated the degree to which he would delegate things. And that was an oversight on my part because I, th I think the evidence was there if you looked at the totality of his career. And I did a fair amount of research on him during the Republican primary, uh, mostly because I wanted to see what we we're dealing with because it became very clear at, at some point that he was probably going to win. I would say that my, my opinion of the Trump administration has undergone several different metamorphoses in terms of the past couple of years. And it really just kind of depends on the issue and the personnel. I've realized that, uh, particularly for a populist president, the people around that person become very important. Personnel becomes policy. That wasn't something that I ever really knew or thought about in terms of presidential politics before. Uh, I think it's a valuable lesson moving forward. Those appointments, those lower level appointees, political positions matter a lot. And the relationship that, that folks in those positions have with the civil service and also with the president. I think that on the whole, 
I have been more surprised than not by things that have happened with, with Trump. And I think the biggest surprise for me was in the 2020 election. I did not expect things to go down the way they did, particularly in terms of the coalition that he ended up having. And so that was that was a surprise. And I will acknowledge, frankly, that I'm still processing some of that and what that means, and what that looks like moving forward in terms of American politics. But when I look back at the Trump administration, I think that a lot of things that were underlying in American politics have been brought to the surface. I don't see Trump as very causal. I see him as having brought out things that already existed and brought about and brought into high relief some conflicts in American society that were baked into the cake already. I don't know where exactly we go from here. I don't think anybody does. Because if we wake up on January 20th and Biden becomes inaugurated as president and Trump's gone, I don't think most people are ready for that reality, a post-Trump reality. And I think that for most people that are watching politics right now, they don't, they still don't believe that it's actually going to happen. But Trump supporters are convinced that somehow he will still end up being president and Trump's opponents are convinced that somehow they're going to wake up and it's going to be Lucy with the football. And I don't think anybody's really mentally prepared for what comes next. I think that the major dynamic that I've talked about at the beginning, class divide among politically active white voters, will bring with it a certain realignment of politics. And I think that realignment includes a realignment among large segments of the population that have been taken for granted by Democrats as, as voting voting blocks that they're just going to get in perpetuity. I know I've been hammering on this point. If you've been listening to the podcast for a while, you've heard me make this point over and over and over again, but I think it bears repeating. We are taking for granted that certain things in American politics are fixed laws, fixed rules of how the game is played and how the game operates. I go back to what I said about Trump with, with foreign policy. Sometimes when you throw the rule book out, you realize that some of the assumptions you've been operating under are wrong. Other times when you throw the rule book out, you realize that some of the, the assumptions you've been operating under are won by hard experience, hard years of experience. And so for all of us in the post-Trump era, looking at the retrospective here, looking back at the legacy, the challenge is going to be to sift through and say, what are some things that we took for granted that the Trump administration has, has and, and the experience that we've had of President Trump has exposed as flawed assumptions? And what are some other things that we have now learned through hard and bitter experience, again, are, that are assumptions that have been confirmed? And that's not something that we can fully exhaust in, in one podcast. This is a very, very sketchy overview of some of kind of my personal reactions to and, and retrospectives on the Trump administration. That's going to be a wrap for this episode. 
it's not going to be a wrap for this topic because I have a feeling we're going to be talking about it a good bit more over the next couple of months. We're also going to be looking ahead to what a potential Biden administration might look like. And as things kind of move along, I'm hoping that I will be able to give you a profile of some of what's been happening further down ballot. I do want to do a podcast. I'm waiting on this because as I'm recording this on Tuesday night, there are a number of races that are not yet called in the House. And one of the things that I'm hoping to do is to talk about some of what happened in, in last Tuesday's election. Um, this is probably going to drop on either Friday of this week or, or you know, possibly even beginning of next week. I'm not sure. But I want to be able to give you a sense of what happened down ballot. Where, by the way, almost every Republican candidate overperformed Trump. We'll talk about it. We'll talk about all of that moving forward. There's a lot to unpack here. Um, this this is a, um, we actually have data. We know things, right? Do I think this is the most consequential election in American history? No, but I think we know a bunch of things now that we did not know before. And, and I think we know certain things about Trump and the Trump administration that we did not know before. Because, um, you know, to use a political science, like political theory term, Plato's cave is the idea of sort of you come from a cave of illusion and you see shadows on the wall and then you step out of the cave and you, you step into the light of actual knowledge. And the polling and the assumptions and the, you know, everything that we've been hearing all of 2020 has been essentially shadows on the wall. And now we're, we're stepping out into the light. We've actually seen now what's happened in the 2020 election. It's being clarified. You know, we're, we're not fully out of the cave yet, but we're, we're just about there. And so that actually tells us things about what has been happening over the past couple of years that we wouldn't know otherwise. And so we are going to break that down and go in detail and, and look into all of the things that we know now that we did not know before. And also try to look ahead to what's going to be happening in, in the next upcoming year and in the Biden administration. And so stick with us because things are about to get really interesting. I think we're, we're, we are going to be able to really start saying some things much more definitively as everything gets tabulated and we, and we come really into the full knowledge of this. So stick around, stick with us. We will cover all of it. And if you have questions, you want specific information about any more of these things, post that on our Ask Me Anything thread in Facebook. And uh, please do remember to rate and subscribe. Tell all your friends. Tell everybody who's uh, trying to figure out what on earth just happened in politics to rate and subscribe and uh, to pass the word about blind politics. And so for blind politics, this is Dr. Nolte signing off. (laughs) 